Last week we began talking about grace giving, and if you'll grant me some grace, I will talk about it one more time, because Paul had more to say about it. We were looking at what he had to teach about grace giving in 2 Corinthians 8, and he continues on into the next chapter, so we'll pick that up today. What we saw last week, Paul is reminding the church in Corinth, that's church in Greece, present-day Greece, that they had promised to contribute funds to help the poor among the Christians in Jerusalem. And they had, that had kind of slipped from their attention, so he needed to recall them to their commitment to, to make that offering, to, to give to the cause in Jerusalem. To inspire them, he shared with them how the impoverished and suffering churches in Macedonia, which had included places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, uh, how they had been very generous. They had overflowed with generosity, giving according to their ability and beyond their ability to the relief of the Jerusalem saints. In fact, they begged to give, just like you do. They said, please, can we participate in this? Don't count us out, even though we're, we don't have a lot to give. We want to give what we can. They gave this way because of God's grace given to them. That's what Paul said, because the grace of God given to them, they, they gave generously. And because of God's grace, they gave themselves first to the Lord, which is the starting point of all giving, because he is the giver of all that we have. He is the giver of the life we have in Christ. And so with that, we give ourselves to God in relationship to him before we do anything for him. We don't count. We're not checking off a list of good things to do to impress God. We're doing it out of a love relationship that we have with him, that he's established with us through Jesus Christ. So... Um, that's the foundation of grace giving. Today we'll, we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So I'll ask you in regard and respect to God's word, you would stand and we'll read that text, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These are, this is the word of God. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, Greece, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be gracious in every, generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And we do thank God for his inexpressible gift of his word. You may be seated. So what Paul's saying is we, in starting with verse 6, what he said in the first five verses is to ramp up to this. He says, I want to encourage you to make good on your promise to give. And I want to encourage you to give generously. That's what he's saying. So the one who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. So Randall is planting his lawn. And um, the less seed Randall sows to plant his lawn, the more sparse his lawn will be. The less likely it will be ready to show up in better homes and gardens. The more generously he spreads his, his grass seed, the, the greater lawn he's going to have. And you'll be amazed at how green his grass will be. So if we give small proportions in our giving financially, we shall reap small proportions. And I say proportions because that's how God regards generosity, is not the size of the gift, but proportionately to what we have. As he said back in chapter 8, verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So our generosity is based upon what we have, not what we don't have, of course. Makes sense. Because God's measure of generosity isn't the size of the gift, but the proportion of sacrifice. We get the imagery of sowing. We understand that, planting. Uh, Giving is like the scattering of seed. But what is the equivalent of reaping? So what does that imagery translate to? If crops grow from planted seed, what is reaped or harvested from money given? What do you, what do you reap? What do you harvest from, from money given? Well, in one sense, it's the benefit is for that, that what you gave it for. So they were giving to the Jerusalem saints, and so part of the harvest or the benefit was, was relieving their poverty and helping them meet their expenses and meet their needs. But in addition to that, another part of the reaping is the spiritual benefit that comes from trusting the Lord and being generous in response to his grace. Trusting the Lord and doing what is pleasing in his sight leads to spiritual growth and maturity and joy. And generous people are are more joyful than Scrooge. What Paul does not mean is that if you give generously that God will make you wealthy. He doesn't say that. God may choose to give you much wealth for his sovereign purposes and his pleasure in your life, but uh, he doesn't promise that he'll make you rich by giving. And then in verse 7, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, as he's decided in his heart. So how much should you give? That's the question you're all just dying to know. How much should you give? How do I know if I'm giving if I'm sowing bountifully, so to speak, if I'm giving generously. Well, Paul doesn't specify an amount. He doesn't say give a certain percentage. He just says we are to give what we have decided in our hearts. 
how do you decide how much to give in your heart? Well, you pray, for one thing. Ask God to give you confirmation and, and wisdom and, and a generous heart. If there is any information as to what the financial need is, you take that into consideration, and you take into consideration what you have to give and your own finances. The main requirement is that you consider carefully what you want to give. That's what he says. And in giving thoughtful consideration, you don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. So the word reluctantly literally means pain. This pains me to give this much. This, this, this hurts me to give this much. It brings me grief. And to give under compulsion means you're feeling pressured. It means you, you don't really want to give, but you feel obligated, so you do. When I was working for the city of Corvallis in Oregon back in the 90s, each year they had a drive to raise funds for the United Way. United Way is kind of a clearinghouse um, for, for various charitable organizations. And there was definitely compulsion to give. I mean, they used all kinds of gimmickry and all kinds of pressure and all kinds of, hey, we got to beat, the, our department has to beat all the other departments and, be, and give the most and that kind of thing. So it wasn't all bad, but it was definitely not grace giving. It was compulsion giving. It was, hey, we're going to do whatever we can to, to squeeze the most out of you that we can. Grace giving is giving voluntarily, as Paul said in chapter 8, and willingly, as he said back in, in verse 5, uh, you're, you're giving your gifts willingly. God loves it when we give cheerfully and gladly, when we're happy in what we give. As Paul says here, such voluntary, free, willing, and cheerful giving is not opposed to planning what you will give. He says, as you have decided in your heart, as you plan in advance, so you give thought to it. Um, and this means that you have the desire to give. You don't shrug it off. You don't say, well, that doesn't mean me. I, that has no bearing on me. No, you, you take it to heart. You say, what should I give in this situation? And you give a lot of thought to it. Giving is a matter of the heart. Huge point that Paul makes here. Giving is a matter of the heart. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. It's all his anyway. He causes the money we give back to him to do good, for sure. But God doesn't need our money. He's not needy. He's not, he's not a God who's hard up for cash needs you to supply his wealth. What he wants is our hearts. He wants our hearts to want to give in gratitude for Christ's grace. He wants our hearts to want to give in gratitude for Christ's grace. In faith that God will work his gracious and good pur purposes through, through the gifts. It's, it's about God. It's about our hearts. It's about our trusting God for what he does with our money. I read about a business owner who says he and his wife give at least half of their income to God's work each year. He says, my joy in giving comes from serving God in a way that I know he's called me to and in realizing that what I give is impacting people for Christ. He says it's exciting to know we're part of evangelizing, discipling, helping, and feeding the needy. It gives us joy to know that God is using our gifts. I think of one person here at Harvest who, who likes to talk about his joy in giving. And um, he talks about how when he finally understood the grace of giving, it became a genuine heart joy for him. No more grudging giving. 
Whether And whatever he gives, I don't know. Uh, whether he gives $10 a year or $10,000 a year, he does it from a heart that delights in giving. He has a heart trust in the Lord and a joy in giving. He trusts that God uses his gifts for his glory, advancing his kingdom. Now, um, people who are not Christians can be very generous, for sure. But what we're talking about is giving for, for the Lord's work, for the sake of the gospel, for God's kingdom. So we, we rejoice in that, not just in, in supporting a good cause, but God's cause. So let's talk practically about how you decide in your heart what to give. So, so how do you plan what to give? Well, it's helpful to have a budget and to know your income and to be wise about how you spend all your money, not just what you give. And you, um, then you, you support the ministry of your local church first, and then you plan what to give to other organizations and mission organizations and, and mercy ministries and so on in addition to that. This is where the question of tithing comes in. Are we required to tithe? It was required under the Old, under the old Covenant. So the word tithe simply means a tenth. Under the Old Covenant, the Old First Testament people were, were uh, required to give a tenth of their income. Actually, they, they paid three different tithes. They paid one for uh, the support of the Levites and the priests. They gave another tithe for supporting a festival in Jerusalem, a religious festival. And then another every three years to support the poor uh, of the Levites, the widows, the orphans, and, and the foreigners. So they actually paid 23.5%. And that was in, in addition to, they also had free will offerings as well, other, other offerings that they gave. So the church is not Israel, and we don't, have, we don't live under the Old Testament law. And nowhere in the New Testament are Christians explicitly uh, instructed to give a tithe or a tenth of their income to the church. But nowhere is tithing abolished either. So it's, it's, not, it's not explicitly mandated, nor is it, uh, taken taken away. Some people are sure that there is no sense in which tithing is for Christians today. Others are sure it is, and there's debates over that. Very strong opinions on either side. Is it for today or not? So the question is, if you're against tithing, are you are you saying that we should be less generous? Is that what you're arguing for than they were under the Old Testament? What are American Christians giving anyway? Well, 2.5%. So whatever their beliefs are, that's what they're doing. Does the fact that we're not under Old Testament law mean we give less than what was given under the Old Testament? Does grace giving mean we are free to be less generous? Let's look at it this way. Because we, we live under grace and not under law, or do we have less requirement to be holy than they did under the Old Testament? No, because of grace actually gets more to the heart and gives us greater power to live holy lives. So we have a greater capacity to live holy lives, and, and we also have greater capacity to be generous. So tithing can be the training wheels to launch us into the mindset and the habits of grace giving. It can serve as the gateway to the joy of grace giving. 
No, tithing is not the explicitly mandated standard under the new covenant, but as the standard that God gave for his first covenant people to follow, it can serve as, as a beginning pattern to help us get started with grace giving. And again, grace giving doesn't mean, uh, doesn't exclude purposeful planning. It, it, it requires purposeful planning. So you ask, well, what do you do, pastor? Want to know? I'll answer that. So we, we give more than 10% to the church. And ever throughout our whole marriage, we've always given at least a minimum of 10% to, to the church that we've been a part of. And there's times on paper it didn't make sense to do that, but God's always supplied for us to do that. And in addition, we, we give to mission, different mission works and mercy works as well. So that's what we do. Um, some of you might say, I can't afford to give 10% to the church. I could barely make my bills. Right now, it's all I can do to give a few dollars every now and again. So I understand that many of you, perhaps some of you at least, are struggling greatly financially, and that would be a huge stretch for you to do that. Some of you don't struggle, and some of us need to consider whether we get, whenever we get comfortable with our giving, it's time to raise it again. So have you been really comfortable with what you've been giving for years? Maybe God's calling you to be more generous, whether it's with this church or other, other works. I, again, I, I, I'm praying and hoping that Harvest next year can give more to missions. We need to give more outside what we do here. But Paul's teaching on grace giving tells us that he desires for all God's children to be generous. As we take steps of obedience, and that's what God's calling us to do, to take steps of obedience in giving to the Lord's work. By his grace, he will supply what, what we need to do as well. And that's what he says in verse 8. In verse 8, this is the, I love this verse. It's so powerful. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That word abound is the same word that Paul used back in, in the first couple of verses of chapter 8 where he said the grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. That's the same word, abounded. It's overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. We, we pointed out in that verse that we don't normally think of severe test of affliction and abundance of joy as going together. We don't think of extreme poverty and, and wealth of generosity as, as going together, all applying to the same people. But the grace of God gave to them and enabled them and empowered them to overflow, to abound in a wealth of generosity in spite of severe affliction and extreme poverty. So what Paul says here in this verse, in verse 8 of chapter 9, the same word for overflow is that same word, abound, because God is able to make all grace overflow to us, we will have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that we may overflow in every good work. So we're on grace over, overflow. You got a, If you've got a grace backlog, you need to release it. You got grace indigestion, release it. This is why we can give generously and freely, because we know God makes his grace overflow to us so that we will have all that we need in every situation. 
at all times so that we may overflow in every, every, every good work that God presents to us to do. So we get by faith in God's grace supply. God makes his grace overflow to us so that we will have more than enough not to keep and spend on ourselves, but for every good work. So the question I have, this is what God's word says. Do we believe it? Do we believe this verse? Do we trust that God really will do that? Can I share what you shared this morning, Cindy, about your what you did with missions? So Cindy was talking with a group of us to meet in the morning, and, and she said that back when, she was challenged to increase her giving to missions. So she raised her giving to missions five times what she had in the past, and, it, and she didn't have the money in her income. And God supplied through raising her income what she didn't know she was going to get so she could make good on her pledge. So God has his ways of supplying God has his ways of supplying needs. What Paul says in verse 9 is he's quoting from Psalm 112, 9, where he says the righteous man is generous. The righteous person is generous. He gives freely to the poor. He is generous with his money for God's purposes. And then in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The reason the farmer has seeds to plant is that God supplies the seed. That's why he has seeds in the first place. God, He didn't invent the seeds himself. God supplied them. He causes the growth of the seed into the grain and this way provides bread for food. So God provides the seed. He provides the growth. He provides the bread that way. The farmer just needs to be faithful to generously scatter the seed from which God will produce a rich harvest. You could be afraid to plant the seeds because after all, they just disappear into the ground. Who knows if they're going to grow? But seeds are designed to be planted and to grow and produce a harvest. Randall could have been afraid to plant his grass seed. He could have said, I'm just going to hold on to this grass seed because I don't know if it's going to grow or not and what's going to happen to it. You did say you were going to tithe from your grass seed, right? Okay, great. He, he could have said, I better hang on to it. How do I know it, it will grow? But he had the faith to spread seed for a glorious lawn. In the same way, God supplies and multiplies our seed, our finances for sowing, that is, for giving, and will increase the harvest of our righteousness. The righteousness that we are gifted by Christ is given to grow in our lives and to do good for others. One way of investing our grace-gifted righteousness from God is through giving to Christ's work. It's not the only way, but it's a way that we do that. We give by faith in how God will continue to supply our financial needs and multiply what we have for giving and how we will grow in righteous living and how our gifts will, will advance God's purposes. That we in some way will get credit for, so to speak. In other words, God really counts us as participating in the works that our gifts support. You've heard the phrase, follow the money. Follow the money. It's typically said in terms of uh, like finding a, a crook or somebody who's being unscrupulous or uh, something who's do- someone who's done wrong, you follow the money. Well, in, in God's economy, follow the money to, to the person who's doing right. 
I think what Paul is saying is that where your giving has gone will be used by God to produce fruit for his kingdom and that he will begin applying it to your life now in growth in Christ and blessing to increase the harvest of your righteousness. But the best part will be eternal blessing. You are storing up future life treasures as you, as you give. It will follow the money to, to the giver. Those who preach a prosperity gospel as distorted as they make the gospel, saying that you, you give to God in order to get rich, they have a part of the truth. That is, you will be blessed if you give, but not with material things for your personal consumption, but to, give, to keep giving and to give more, and not mostly for your best life now. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. I'm just going to read this scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 18 and 19. God's people are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, in this way, storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus also taught this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. The treasure principle is this. This is the treasure principle. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. As you give to your church and other ministries, you're participating in the discipling of children, youth, and adults in the spread of the gospel among unreached peoples, in providing for the gathering of Christ's people for worship, word, and fellowship, in helping people in financial need and other life struggles, in equipping people for serving Christ. Your your dollars go, your money goes where you can't or don't always have the capacity to. Your gifts give you an investment share in the growth of Christ's church in becoming like him and serving him. In any kind of investing, you invest your money by faith. You hope to get a a good return on your investment. In this world, there are no 100% guaranteed investments. But investing with God is the only investment 100% guaranteed to get a fantastic eternal return. Don't ask how your investment is paying off in 30 years. Have a long-term view. Don't, don't just think of 30 years ahead. Think 30 million years ahead. So if you doubt what I'm saying is true, check with me back in 30 million years and we'll see. Paul continues on in verse 11. In verse 11, he sums up his main point from the last three verses. As you give, God enriches you in every way to be generous in every way. He enriches you in every way to be generous in every way. So he enriches you not for you to spend it all on on you, but so that you can keep giving and give more. And as you give to God's work in Jesus' name, this produces thanksgiving to God. And you have to question, is, is that valuable to me? Do I want people to give thanks to God by what I give? Or does that even cross my mind? Well, I was in seminary, and I was, Patty and I were married at that point, and we stayed married through it. It was great. We, we were low in finances. In fact, I married her when she had a good job, and as soon as we, as soon as we got in, I, 
we got engaged and she lost her job. So I lost a good deal of income that way. We were committed to not going into debt to make it through school. We decided if we ever, if we didn't have the money that I would take that semester off. There were some semesters where the tuition was due in a few days. And then the day before, the check would show up. And sometimes we knew who it was from. Other times we didn't. But boy, did we give thanks to God in his supplying of our needs. So be the answer to someone's prayer. And I'm aware of that happening in, in this body. You're very generous. You're great at meeting people's needs. George Mueller, back in the 1800s, uh, ran an orphanage. Over the years, he, he, he took care of over 10,000 orphans. He never directly asked for money. He just prayed. And so in one story, um, there were 300 orphans were coming to breakfast, and they, he didn't have anything, he had nothing to give them for food. And um, a, a, a baker showed up at his door and said, I don't know why, but I, was, I felt like I needed to bring you all this bread. So he brought him tons of bread. And then later on, a, another knock at the door, a, a milk truck broke down, said, I'm, my, my milk truck broke down, I can't deliver it, so do you want the, all this milk? They had enough milk and bread to, to feed 3, 300 kids. So be, in, be the answer to someone's prayer. And sometimes God will just put you there, like cause your milk truck to break down. In verse 12, he says, The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So that's a huge reason why we give, to produce thanksgivings to God. It's causing overflowing of thanksgivings to God. So we give to meet ministry, mission, and mercy needs. And even more importantly, we give so that people will recognize God as the supplier of the gifts and the grace to the giver to give so that thanksgiving will overflow. There's that word again. If you forget everything else from this message, just get overflow. I overflow with grace for God's people. Cause grace, thanksgiving will overflow to God. By their approval of the service, he says in verse 13, actually the better translation there, the ESV is a great translation, but they, they dropped the ball in this, in this verse. It should be by the proof or proven character of this service. What Paul is saying here is that the Jerusalem saints will glorify God because of the proof that the Corinthian giving gives of their submission or obedience to their confession of the gospel of Christ. The Corinthians' giving will show that they really believe the gospel. Or in other words, they believe what what Paul wrote back in verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul had said he wasn't commanding that they give, but yet here he says their giving was proof of their obedience to their confession of the gospel. That's because God's grace to us in the gospel gives us hearts that love his people and are glad to give to help others and to advance his, his work, his kingdom work. This, this includes the uniting of Jew and Gentile. That's what was going on in this situation. Our giving shows to what extent we believe and obey the gospel. Our giving should reflect 
How much do I believe God has saved me by his grace? How much do I believe he has gifted to me freely, generously, when he didn't have to? The Jerusalem church will glorify God because of the Corinthians' generosity to them and to others. This is the greatest motivation to give that people will glorify God. So we pray and thank God for the generosity of you at Harvest because there's a good reason to glorify God because of your generosity. In verse 14, he says, While they long for you and pray for you, the grace of God frees us and moves us to give. Grace-giving results in longing and affection between the the giver and the receiver and in praying for one another. Grace-giving isn't just about a financial transaction. It is to produce relationships in Christ. In fact, the word for contribution back in verse 13 is the word for fellowship. So you're creating, you're establishing, you're growing, you're strengthening fellowship in the body of Christ through giving. So, for example, we have a a group of Indian believers in the state of Haryana who pray for us daily because because we contribute to their ministry. So giving gets us praying for one another. And Paul concludes by saying, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And what that refers to is Jesus. Thanks be to God that he has given us this amazing gift that we can't even put into words. We can't exhaust how great God's grace to us and generosity to us is in Jesus. Thanks be to God for for the grace he's given us in Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and then we have Matt Eldridge is going to come up, and he's going to share some things on his heart. So let's pray. Father, we are so blessed. We are so greatly overflowing with your grace toward us in Jesus. How awesome is his, the gift of your Son to us. We thank you, Father, that we're not just about an organization that runs on money, but you do use our financial gifts to accomplish your kingdom purposes. You are concerned about our hearts more than anything else, and so, Father, I pray that we will continue to grow in our heart's desire to be generous because of Christ's grace and to use our money to glorify you and to produce thanksgiving for you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this incredible gift of Christ. Thank you, Father, for the generosity that we experience here and and the way it shows our love for, for you and for one another. Thank you, Father, for your great blessing of Christ's grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.